0: What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host Gordon Burkell, and this episode I'm interviewing Doc Kratzer. He's the editor of Glee, Sons of Anarchy, and what we're going to be talking about, Chaos Walking. If you enjoy these podcasts, you're really going to enjoy FilmmakerU at FilmmakerU.com. There are courses put on by the top people in the film industry. You can check it out at FilmmakerU.com and use the code AOTG to get 10% off. But with all that said, here's my interview with Doc. How did you get involved with Chaos Walking?
1: I uh, I worked on a TV show for Doug Lyman uh, that he, he was one of the producers on along with his um, LA-based TV company called Impulse. Uh, the show was called Impulse. A season of that, the first season, had met Doug briefly, but just like a hello. Hadn't worked very closely with him directly at that point, but worked very closely with Dave Bardis and Gene Klein, his two creative partners in LA I guess the movie was at a point they had done principal photography and kind of gone through the first wave of editing the film always knowing that there was going to be pretty extensive reshoots because they had to shoot the movie sooner than they were ready to because of actor availability during that time in in preparation for reshoots Doug wanted to do some more work on the movie and was looking for an editor kind of fresh eyes to come in and I guess Dave Bardis said, well, you should, you should talk to Doc and see if, if you think it would be a good fit. He connected us um, and I spoke with Doug and he said, well, do you wanna to come to New York and you know work on some stuff? And at that point it was, uh, we were only planning on it being about six or eight weeks to work on some very specific scenes. And then that turned into, hey, let's just recut the movie, which of course takes longer than six or eight weeks. So I found myself in New York, kind of the first stint on Chaos Walking when they were in between the principal photography and the additional photography for about six months. And then then there was a down period of time where I went back to work on season two of, of Impulse. And then when they were gearing up for shooting, the additional photography was when I, I started to come back onto Chaos Walking and, and went back to New York and then was on for the duration, which was... From about, I came back on in May, and then we finished the following July. Would have been a little faster, but um, you know the pandemic <laughs> slowed uh, slowed some of that down. But yeah. we were able to to finish. I mean, finishing a movie in a pandemic is a interesting experience. As you know, everyone everyone now uh, who who works in this business has done some level of post-production in a pandemic hopefully but so what did you guys do because it was it was the start so everyone was like what do we do it really was we there was a lot of sort of you know what do we do i mean fortunately i wouldn't say we were picture locked we were like soft locked you know there were some changes happening but by and large we weren't making large picture changes to the movie with the exception of the opening sequence, which I'm sure we'll get into talking about, that was kind of one of the last big changes we made on the movie, but it was substantial. We were remote, of course, to start, but we had to do all of our ADR with the actors, and and that was done by sending them iPads uh, and microphones, and we would get on Zoom, and you know, it's uh, it was very DIY. It it worked great. But it was funny because, you know, you're you're on Zoom and you're always saying, can you go to the quietest <laughs> place in your house or apartment? So it's like you're in people's like closets, was you know, and say, you're doing ADR for for a for a movie like this. So it's yeah. it's it's such a different experience than uh, the normal one. But it was fun, you know, and I think that everybody they were good sports about it. Did anyone have a whole quilt over their head to try and deaden the sound at any point? <laughs> <laughs> there were definitely some, uh, there was some adjusting, of course, uh, at, at, with each room trying to, you know, figure out like, hey, what's what's that sound? You know, there's a weird hum going on or, or things like that. So that was very interesting. And same with like, you know, VFX reviews, which typically, especially with a movie like this where there's visual effects In some way shape or form in almost every shot because of the noise you're reviewing them on a much smaller screen than looking at them big and it's just a different collaborative process when people aren't all in the same room together you know try as you might it's sort of you still have to work at some other things a little harder than you would otherwise and and then of course when we got to time to mix the movie we were on stage but it was just a very minimal the least amount of people it, it was usually just us and and the sound team and we were all in our n95 masks and on opposite sides of the room and we would leave the room every hour because at that point you know again it was pretty early on and we were having to be super careful rightfully so so the room was like getting cleaned and stuff every hour and it was a whole thing but but ultimately I mean I'm really proud of how it turned out and I think in spite of a lot of those challenges, we were able to find some really great creative uh, ideas and solutions at the end when it came to things like sound and visual effects. There's a couple things I'd like to talk to you about the, the noise, but I do want to start
0: yep. with, you mentioned that the opening was sort of the last thing that you locked. what were the challenges in that opening?
1: I guess to kind of get us into talking about the movie, the, the big thing about this movie that is different from most or from any really is that in this movie, people's thoughts are seen and heard. And and by seen and heard, I mean seen is as, as in there are visuals that accompany thoughts. Sometimes they're nondescript visuals, and then sometimes they're very specific visuals. If the thought is a very strong thought, then it actually becomes an image of what the person's thinking about. And when I say heard, it's not that we the audience are hearing a character's internal thoughts. It's its that the character's internal thoughts are actually externally heard by everyone in that world, including the audience as we're watching. So that was the challenge of the opening of the movie was sort of figuring out what's the best way to introduce the audience effectively to this new language, you know, or this or this new kind of thing in our toolbox of storytelling that no one is used to. So we wanted to set it up Both as far as how it fits into the world and the story of the movie, but also on a sensory level, just for the viewing experience, figuring out how best to introduce it in a way that people can digest it and then quickly, hopefully settle into the movie as a movie and not be taken out by this unfamiliar thing you know that is noise because it it can be as we learn throughout the process it's a very fine line you're constantly walking with it both as far as what it looks like and what it sounds like i think as far as the difference between something that is interesting and unique and enhances the story that you're telling and something that becomes distracting or off-putting i mean we spent more time over the course of the whole process on the first like 10, 15 minutes of the movie than any other part. But at the very end, we were kind of taking one last big swing at what's the best way to ease people into this. Because what we had found was in doing preview screenings, it was very easy to turn people off. If the sound of the noise was too much, then they would disconnect. If the visuals were too much, then at the beginning of the movie, they weren't sure what to pay attention to. We sort of had to get a little more hand in a way with the first few scenes so that we could sort of funnel the audience's attention where we wanted it to go, to kind of navigate them through so that we come out the other side of the first 10 minutes of the movie and they understand what noise is on the story level And also, they're ready to sort of receive the rest of the movie with noise as a component of it, but not being distracted. And in practice, what that meant was a very gradual kind of strategic introduction to the noise. So, ultimately, where we ended up, we start the movie with a scene with our main character Todd in the woods, and he's by himself, and we hear his thoughts. So you're introducing the idea that you're hearing thoughts. And at that point, because he's by himself, for all you know, especially as a viewer who's seen maybe other movies like, you know, What Women Want, where you hear people's thoughts, for all you know, you're hearing his internal thoughts. And that's okay, as long as you leave that first scene knowing that you're hearing someone's thoughts. Then you get to the second scene where a single character comes in to interact with him. And at that point, we hear that other person's thoughts. So then as as a viewer, you go, oh, okay, so I'm hearing I'm gonna hear more than one person's thoughts in this movie. But then within that scene, you see that they hear each other's thoughts and they actually interact with each other based on hearing each other's thoughts. So from there, you then have sort of earned going into a scene with more than two people. And ultimately you get to the point where Tom Holland kind of does the traditional Western movie, walk down Main Street, but it's this town full of noise, full of thoughts that you're seeing and hearing by that point, you've been eased into it. So it's a, you know, you're you're able to kind of take it as part of the story versus other iterations of the movie. We had a scene that was similar to that, that we omit it, where he walks down Main Street, but it was too early in the movie. And, and you could tell because people were just very confused by it. They didn't really know what was going on and they didn't know what the important things in the scene to pay attention to were. So in that case, it was a little bit of restructuring and some addition by subtraction and taking out that scene of confusion, it allowed people a little more time to digest the noise before we were asking them to then kind of jump into the journey of the story because the noise is such an important component of the movie. I mean, I think it's the reason this movie got made. You need people to be on board with it. And, and as we saw through, you know, like I said, with test screenings and such, We had different versions of noise, both as far as what it looked like and what it sounded like. And it was a constant kind of quest to find a version that was unique and cool and stylized and believable as far as something that would exist in this world, but also something that wasn't so out there that it turned audiences off. And sometimes you had to take creative license with it. There are some scenes where absolutely you'd be hearing a lot more noise. You'd hear a lot more thoughts from people. But in order to keep the focus of the story you were telling, you take some liberties with that and and you don't have other, other people's thoughts. And I sort of viewed that as, you know, if you're shooting a scene and you have a frame and you have two characters, one's in the foreground and one's in the background, you can decide to just have the person in the foreground in focus and the person in the background not in focus. And that's sort of a creative decision. And you're not necessarily getting all the information about what's happening in the background, but you're guiding the audience as a filmmaker as to what to pay attention to. And I think with the audio of the noise, we sort of had to make a lot of decisions like that in order to just do the best version of telling the story that we could.
0: And I think also though, cause there's a couple of things like you do a nice buildup where he walks down main street like what you're talking about and then he gets that sort of confrontation with one of his enemies before the mayor shows up and he's he starts saying snake 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 snake," and then a big snake appears so you also have to like set up the stronger the thought you can actually get visuals that look real and how did you approach then introducing the audience to the fact that you can't see women's because that's one of the dynamics in here is that women's thoughts can be protected in a sense
1: yeah that was tricky because on this planet There are no women on the planet, but then Daisy Ridley's character Viola shows up and she is a woman on the planet and we don't see her noise. So it was tricky. We had to, fortunately, we have a scene in there with the mayor played by Mads Mikkelsen when he's talking to Viola shortly after she's shown up in the movie. And he sort of lays it out for her that why there aren't women on the planet, but Within that, he also explains that they don't have noise. The script never went into the kind of why women don't have noise, which I think is really, would be a very interesting path. It just wasn't the one that, that, you know, this movie went on. Certainly there's a version of the movie where you sort of veer off and it's Viola saying, well, why is this the case? And getting into kind of all that stuff. But yeah, that was tricky because we had to sort of establish why we weren't going to hear her thoughts. But also I think because she has, doesn't have noise, that makes the dynamic between her and Tom Holland's character, Todd, much more interesting because he gets frustrated by the fact that he doesn't know what she's thinking. And she gets frustrated by the fact that she always knows what he's thinking, you know? So, yeah. and to me, that's the heart of the movie is just sort of that dynamic. I think that the story, it's a fun adventure story you know, in a journey that they go on. But my favorite part of the movie, the part that I've always identified with the most is is sort of just the dynamic between the two of them. And that was the part two when I came on to the movie that I got most excited about, was sort of really digging into the relationship between the two of them, you know, and sort of the situational humor that, that naturally comes out of one person's thought, basically having thought diarrhea. <laughs> you know, for lack of a better term uh, that everyone hears. And then the other person being in Todd's mind closed off because he doesn't know what she's thinking. So that was, that was a really fun aspect, you know, and something that with the edit, we were able to really have a lot of fun with.
0: What was the flexibility like in terms of being able to manipulate moments? Because, you know, the editor's powers, we can like hold on a shot for a while. But in this, you could be like, okay, I'm going to let his character play out in his thoughts, or I'm going to sit on this moment longer than normal.
1: Like, what was that like for you, footage-wise? Like, how did you figure out timing and, and pacing in that in that sense? It was a unique opportunity because you could manipulate a lot more of the story than normal through editing. And as far as the noise, you know, we approached it like we're cutting a movie on top of a movie in a way. And within that movie on top of the movie, which is the noise, we found ourselves where we were constantly able to sort of rethink and rewrite you know what scenes were about at times but on a more granular level what moments were about and what characters were thinking in certain moments and it's a really great freedom to have in a lot of ways but it can also make things more challenging because it's just sort of an Endless amounts of possibilities and and rabbit holes you can go down, and that, you know, I think that that's part of why post went on for so long with this movie is because we were going down a bunch of rabbit holes, and and the way that Doug, the director, likes to work is it's a very fluid, creative, exploratory way, which encourages rabbit holes. You know, you go down twenty rabbit holes to find the one that makes the most sense for the movie. And sometimes that's the 20th one and sometimes that's the second one that you circle back to. You kind of go through that process in order to, to find what fits. And um, there were scenes with noise. One of the, the most fun parts of the movie was after I had sort of gone through with Doug and we had reworked the movie as it stood before the reshoots, Tom Holland was in New York and came into the cutting room and we set up a microphone just like this and basically spent a couple days riffing with him about noise because there's scripted kind of pauses where the actors knew that we'd ultimately be hearing what they were thinking so they were they were giving space for that but a lot of times what was scripted and shot wasn't what ended up in the movie and, and much of what's in the movie came out of those couple of days with Tom being in the cutting room and it was just Tom Doug, Allison Winter, producer on the movie, and myself, and we put the movie up on on the big screen, and would talk about a scene, and Tom would do what was scripted a couple times, and then Tom would riff on it, and then Doug would say, "What about this?" and Tom would say, "Yeah," and "What about that?" and then Allison, you know, and we just sort of spent a few days doing that, and it was a really fun collaborative process. And what came out the other side with that, of course, was a number of good ideas that stayed in the movie for those specific scenes, but also what came out of it, which helped us immensely down the line editorially, was we then had sort of a library of Tom Holland playing Todd's thoughts, you know, and and those, in a lot of instances, he may have had an idea for one scene that we recorded and we wound up going down a different path, but then seven months later, that idea came very much in handy when we were working on a scene from the reshoots where we needed to fill some thoughts or we needed to remind audiences of a character or a detail or a story point. By the end of it, we had this bank sort of of Tom Holland doing thoughts. And that was, that was the thing from which we built a lot of the noise.
0: Was there a moment or a scene that you're proud of how it's changed,
1: how it evolved and went completely away from what it was originally gonna do? Is there a scene like that that stands out for you? One scene that I'm really proud of, since we're talking about editing, uh, is a scene that's sort of completely created in the editing room, really, is um, there's a big reveal in the movie and about his past and the past of the planet and, and, and the history of the planet. And shortly after that, there's a scene where he is sort of processing it all and sort of having a, a bit of a breakdown, really. And When you start to think about well, what does a emotional stressful sort of breakdown look like in a world where you hear and see people's thoughts and that they they project those out when they get emotional we sort of took pieces from from a scene that was omitted i mean using jump cuts and using visual effects with noise and a whole bunch of sound design we kind of crafted this like mini scene lit that is is him sort of trying to process the emotional side of the history that he found out that is sort of groundbreaking for him and life-changing for him. And that was something that just came out of sort of pieces of footage that were never shot with that intent. So as far as like taking, you know, something different and, and making it work in the movie, I think that's probably the bigger examples of that. As far as what changed the entire third act of the movie was part of the additional photography. So there was a third act shot during the principal photography. And my understanding is at the time, everyone knew that the third act wasn't really ready to be shot, but Hmm. because of the limited shooting windows they had, they shot it knowing that that ultimately there would be a lot more to shoot with it. And and what they wound up doing in in the reshoots was just a, a totally different third act, different set piece, different location. So there's a whole Big, huge sequence that's on the cutting room floor. We were actually just looking at it not long ago because um, for the Blu-ray that's coming out late in May, later this month, there's like 45 minutes of deleted scenes on it, and there's some really interesting stuff. It was fun to sort of dig back into that, and, and one of one of the sections shows some of what could have been, I guess, you know, as far as the the alternate ending.
0: Are you able to tell us what the alternate ending, or should we save that for the Blu-ray? <laughs> uh,
1: I mean i i would I would say if um, if somebody you know enjoyed the movie and they and they plan to dive into that stuff, I wouldn't want to spoil it. But it's a different type of showdown between Todd and and the main villain of the movie, and another character, a big character in the movie that was a smaller character in the book. We ultimately wound up kind of minimizing the character in the movie, but in the original ending it was a much bigger part of it and this is a spoiler so uh but i'll I'll preface it and the uh, native species to the planet is called spackle and they make an appearance in the movie really just for one scene but in the original ending they played a much kind of larger role in in kind of this big confrontation between Todd and and the bad guys
0: there's a couple of relationships I found really interesting was Todd and uh his family before he leaves it's a very short sort of section in the first act yep was there more to that storyline or was that something that always sort of was kept tight like that because I found it very interesting that relationship between him and his relatives
1: originally it was it was very tight and you know I think the one thing throughout really didn't change with this movie was just that as you look at the movie, there's Todd on his planet before Viola shows up and then Todd after Viola mm-hmm. shows up. So his family component is largely done before she shows up. It's at least established. And then of course they play a role in in what happens with, with Todd and Viola when they start to go on the run. So during the additional photography, and this is also on the um, Blu-ray, we shot a prologue to the movie that took place years before in the past with a younger Todd who was like eight or 10 years old, I forget, or nine, I don't know, thereabouts. But it was like this big, long, almost 20-minute section to open the movie. And there was more, more to it there with... Todd has two adoptive fathers, so it sort of it left some mystery to it, but it also hinted at, at kind of how that came to be that they adopted him and then it it went from baby todd to this this like you know 10-year-old todd and and had some other scenes with them and and built a little bit more up on the family dynamic ultimately the challenge with them that we found is people are showing up to the movie because they want to see Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley go on the run together and anything that you add before that only delays getting to that point and secondly, even more so than that, it was challenging to start a movie like this without seeing Tom or Daisy for that long. You know, it wasn't just about, oh well, trying to get to the the collision of them sooner and before that point we're just following Tom Holland around, you know, on his on his planet. It, this was this was even different than that because it was he wasn't even in the movie yet. There was nothing in that prologue that that better set up the rules of noise and sort of eased audiences into it the way that we were talking about earlier. So, uh, you know, for all those reasons, among others, it, it never saw the light of day in the movie, but there was a lot more backstory. And and that's a tricky thing too, because, you know, different people like different things with movies. And, and you know, with this one, we're trying to make a movie that, that all different types of moviegoers enjoy. And some people love world building you almost can't do too much of it for them. And then other people don't, they just wanna to get to the chase. you know. They wanna to get to the action. So finding that balance with this movie while simultaneously figuring out within that balance how to thread the noise into it was, you know that was the dance that we were doing uh, the whole time.
0: Well, and the other character I really like, and I can't remember the character's name, so I apologize, but it's the religious figure that's chasing them. Yep, Aaron. Aaron. Yep, played by David O'Yellow. And just the dynamic of almost over-the-top fear that he puts into them. So that character always stuck with me. There's no
1: question there. I just (laughs) he stuck with me. No, I mean, it was such a fun character. And and one of the fun things for us with him was sort of, I think pretty early on, we knew that his noise would look and sound a little different than everyone else's because Mm -hmm. each character does have their own unique relationship to their noise. And just like everyone's speaking voice is different. We thought, well, everyone's noise would slightly be different, but his was a really fun one because of his noise often looks like, kind of, as you saw, like, you know, flames, it's very red and orange, and just visually, it was so fun to play with. All of the noise, the visual noise in the movie is tied to the audio, even if it's subtle. So as people's, as they're getting louder when they, they think or speak, or well, when they think, the noise is kind of pulsing with it or there are things shooting off of it that follow the, the waveforms and the audio and stuff. And Aaron's was one that was really tied to that in a cool way. I love
0: high concept scripts and Doug Lyman seems to always take huge swings with his story. So like Edge of Tomorrow, Jumper, Born Identity. Uh, so what was it like when you first got into the room where you, cause it's such a high concept film. It's like, you're going to see their thoughts.
1: Yeah. I, I really knew very little going in and I think that was by design from Doug. Like we spoke on the phone before I started, he gave me sort of the elevator pitch of the movie, but he intentionally didn't want me to read the script ahead of time. He wanted me to see the movie as a viewer because at that point it did exist you know they knew they were, they were going to shoot more but there was a movie to watch so I really had no expectations other than I thought it would be fun because I think all of Doug's movies are fun and unique and certainly immediately kind of saw what I assumed to be and in talking with him after certainly it was the thing that drew him to the movie which was the unique challenge of, of the noise and, and telling a story with that as this component you know the high concept of it all I didn't have a ton of expectations about it other than expecting to be surprised, and I certainly was when I saw it. And because of the way Doug likes to work, there's this fluidity even as they're shooting. So the script, as I saw, like the most recent version of the script didn't even reflect the cut that I watched because by that point so much had changed either as they were shooting, they they tried some other things, or in the edit already, things had changed different from the script level. So it was really interesting at that point to compare what the script had been versus where the movie was at that point and then where we were going from there. But I think intentionally when I when I was going in, Doug tried to strategically withhold information because he wanted me to sort of receive it with, with fresh eyes and ears. What would you say is your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Oh, that's a good question. That thing you do. The Tom Ah, Hanks movie. I love that movie. movie. It's a great movie. I don't so good. I have like I guess with guilty pleasure I sort of have a negative connotation. So I don't think I don't think it's a guilty pleasure movie in the sense that it's a bad movie. I think it's actually a really well made movie. But I think it's a guilty pleasure in the sense that it's it's one of those movies that like I think a lot of people dismiss. You know, one of those movies that always seems to be on VH one and things like that. that Yeah, you know. But when you really watch that movie it's uh it's such a well-made movie yeah it's so fun always makes me smile i wish tom hanks would do more directing like that because i feel like yeah he he made some great director yeah maybe he just doesn't want the responsibility he's a busy guy you know (laughs) seems pretty busy well thank you so much for letting me interview of course thanks so much for having me and for watching chaos walking
0: so that was my interview with doc i'd like to thank doc for allowing me to interview him i'd also like to thank evan winch for cutting this episode i'm your host gordon burkell thanks for listening